0: All right, I'm now recording.
1: Hi, Malika. All right.
0: That's the sound of me talking our correspondent, Bernard Smith, through recording an interview, not far from the war zone he's been covering for the past few days.
1: I'm now in a town in Armenia called Goris. I was sent over here when fighting started between ethnic Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijan.
0: And I want to apologize now if the sound isn't
1: perfect. I'm in this tiny hotel room.
0: You may even, occasionally, hear some other voices sneak in.
1: They've put up refugee children as well, you know, lots of kids running around. And I've got an eight-month-old in the room next door. I thought
0: I heard kids.
1: That gets up at eight, (laughs) uh, that gets up for a feed at four, four o'clock in the morning, as far as I can work out.
0: But we did manage to talk about who's been fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh, what it's like fighting a war in a pandemic, and how likely it is to stop. We'll also tell you what American celebrity Kim Kardashian West has to do with it. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. So, what have you been up to for the past week or so?
1: So, I've been in... Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh for about the last 10 days. I started off arriving in Armenia, in Yerevan, the capital there, heading straight to Nagorno-Karabakh, which was a good six-hour drive. We stayed there for a few days until it got too dangerous, frankly. The bombardments were too much and we had to leave.
0: Too dangerous indeed. Viewers of your reports of Al Jazeera can see you had a very close call near a power station the other day.
1: Yes, I guess it's like an electricity substation that distributes the power to a a part of the city. And this substation was behind our hotel and we realised there was some heavy missile fire coming in and we didn't know what they were aiming at. When the air raid sirens stopped, we went out of the bunker in the hotel and they'd hit this hardware store and we were filming by this hardware store. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, seven rolling now that was a uh, very close uh rocket targeting somewhere near here and i think okay let's go guys come 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 we wondered what on earth they were aiming at a hardware store for. And then we saw an electricity substation and we realised probably missed that. And they were clearly trying to hit that power station. We we got away, of course, thankfully, uh, pretty quickly. It was hit later in the day and it knocked out electricity to half the town.
0: people already fled because of the conflict, or were there people?
1: What's happened is that a lot of women and children have been sent out of town, out of Nagorno-Karabakh. They've come to Armenia. Most of the men of fighting age are, everything from 18 to 50, have gone to fight. And what you find is that the town is deserted, but then mainly women and some pensioners, they're all in their bunkers. They've been living in their bunkers for days now. And so when you have to take shelter yourself, occasionally, we have been out, We were out filming in Stephana and the siren would go off, and we'd have to find a nearby bunker, and under the ground, that that's where life is. It's, um, it's very difficult. It's very, very difficult.
0: Looking at the images, you can tell the bunkers are dark and damp. And the fact that there are bunkers everywhere shows how common conflict is here. Inside, Entire families are sitting around tables, and there are mattresses with blankets. Danara Pagosian is one of the women Bernard spoke
2: to. We are in a very bad situation. We sent all of our children out of the city, and we're here for our soldiers, for our sons, waiting for good news and to get out of these cellars. We haven't heard from our sons who are fighting. We don't know how they are, but we Armenians are
0: strong. We are patient. And there are two sides to every story, at least particularly this one. So Bernard has been covering the Armenian
1: side. And of course, I have my colleague in Azerbaijan covering thoroughly that side of the story there.
2: Armenian forces shelling over the Tertar region of Azerbaijan pushed thousands of civilians out. Al
0: Jazeera's Sinem Kosiolu has been reporting on Azeris, who are also seeing casualties and destruction as rocket and missile attacks land on their side of the border.
2: Leila Aslanova fled Tartar with her kids and father four days ago.
0: I became displaced once again, like I was in 1994. Armenian forces occupied our land. We slept in tents. We finally settled
2: in Tartar. But we had to flee without even a mattress to sleep on. Why should my child suffer what I suffer?
0: And we'll get back to Sinem in a little bit. But first, I wanted to ask Bernard how all of this started. So for many people, I imagine this might be the first time they're hearing the name Nagorno-Karabakh. I know that this so-called frozen war between Armenia and Azerbaijan has been going on for a long time. But can you take us back a few decades to when the last full-scale war broke out?
1: Sure. So right at the very beginning, a sort of enmity between... Azerbaijan and Armenia can go back hundreds of years and the Armenians see Nagorno-Karabakh as a very culturally important place it's full of ancient Armenian churches but the Azeris see Nagorno-Karabakh as equally culturally important to them it was a Muslim Khanate for centuries you know ruled by a Khan so they have great connection to it as well so when you know how deep the connections are from both sides of Nagorno-Karabakh, you begin to understand how intractable this is. And then they fought this brutal war. At <laughs> the end of the 80s, the beginning of the 90s, as the Soviet Union broke up, the Armenians of Karabakh voted during the Soviet times to secede and become an independent republic. But it never got approved by Moscow because the Soviet Union was breaking up, so it never happened. In Moscow, the hammer and sickle is lowered for the last time, and an era comes to an end. And they ended up in this almighty war. Some 30,000 soldiers alone were killed. And then there's been this very... An easy ceasefire since then, more than 26 years.
0: Can you talk about after the breakup of the Soviet Union, what that looked like in terms of these different enclaves of people?
1: So, at the time of the breakup of the Soviet Union, it was majority Armenian in Nagorno-Karabakh, ethnically Armenian. And there were Azeri people living there as well, but they fled.
2: The Azeris have all been driven out of the enclave, and hundreds of Armenian refugee families, who originally left because of starvation and the bloody fighting, have now returned to their homes.
1: And what also happened at the end of this war is that Armenia ended up taking another chunk of land to the western side of Nagorno-Karabakh, occupying another seven provinces of what is, unarguably, Azeri territory. And there were some half a million Azeris living there, and they fled. In 1994,
0: Russia declared the ceasefire, and Nagorno-Karabakh remained part of Azerbaijan under international law, despite its ethnic Armenian
1: population. We must remember that Nagorno-Karabakh is not part of Armenia, What's happened is that ethnic Armenians in Armenia have gone to help the fight in Nagorno-Karabakh. But it's not technically a fight of Armenia against Azerbaijan. So none of these issues have been resolved.
0: So how did this aggression start up again this time? Do we know? There's dispute.
1: There is dispute, yes.
2: It's not clear how this fighting began.
1: Both sides accuse each other of starting the latest hostilities.
2: Armenia and Azerbaijan
1: blame each other. But there's always been this line of contact that runs between Azerbaijan and Nagorno-Karabakh, this heavily militarised line of contact with men in trenches, sometimes only 100 metres apart from each other. And all the time, soldiers get killed in small-scale fights over the years across that line of contact. But it flared up this time. And this time, Azerbaijan launched a full-scale assault on Nagorno-Karabakh. And what is clear this time round, Azerbaijan has much greater air superiority than Armenia has. Nearly 30 years ago, they were both using sort of similar types of weaponry.
0: Since then, Azerbaijan has grown rich from oil reserves and pipelines carrying that oil to Europe run close to nagorno karabakh
1: Azerbaijan has now spent some billions of dollars on Israeli and Turkish weapons and drones. Azeri missile strikes on Armenian positions. <laughs> Armenians shooting down Azeri drones. <laughs> and it's been apparent this last week Azerbaijan has had really considerable superiority in the air, although both sides have suffered, unfortunately, casualties.
0: There are reports that hundreds have been killed so far, though numbers like this are hard to verify. But there was a sign of hope that the casualties would end when we spoke to Bernard late last week. At the time of this interview, Friday, October 9th, they are talking about a ceasefire as we speak.
2: The Kremlin, along with the EU and France, are calling for an immediate ceasefire.
1: Do people in the region have hopes for that? Nobody wants to see blood loss, and there's been a lot of death. So those outside would want a ceasefire, but on the ground there isn't that desire. You don't hear them talking about a ceasefire. (laughs) The shell fragment came and hurt my arm and also killed the animals. We have not left. We are not going to run away. Why should we leave our lands? The same as my colleagues, the people they're speaking to, them Azerbaijan do not want to cease fire. They want Azerbaijan's president to finish this, to take it back forcefully.
2: They say they've already suffered enough in 30 years of this conflict.
1: We'll destroy them. We don't want a ceasefire. They killed our children. It's so entrenched, defending their land. So hardened are the feelings towards Nagorno-Karabakh and their belief that they have this claim to Nagorno-Karabakh.
2: The ceasefire happened, but it didn't hold. The scene in Genja, barely 24 hours since a ceasefire, was agreed between Armenia and Azerbaijan's armed forces. Devastation, despair and body bags.
0: It continues officially, but there have been a number of deaths since it was put in place. So, do these countries want to end the fighting? Both Bernard and Sinem, who you heard earlier, have not just been talking to people in the region, they've also been talking to the leadership. Sinem sat down with Azeri President Ilham Aliyev in Baku about Azerbaijan's intentions going ahead.
2: When we look at the latest conflict, Azerbaijan military gained some advance on the ground. Yes, exactly, and and took back some of the villages. Does it mean that Azerbaijan is not going to withdraw from those areas that they have regained control of? No, of course not, because these areas belong to us. The areas of our ancient lands, these areas where our people lived for centuries, and they were occupied and destroyed by Armenians.
0: Aliyev was clear that Azerbaijan was not ready to relinquish much.
2: It's our land. We regained it. We regained it by force, and we will rebuild the cities. We will rebuild the villages. We will return the
1: initial names. Meanwhile, Prime Minister of Armenia, Nikol Pashinyan, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera.
0: Bernard spoke with Armenia's Prime Minister, Nikol Pashinyan. Was he conciliatory at all? What is his plan to stop this violence?
1: When I spoke to him, he wasn't conciliatory, no. He was quite forthright in, he said, we have the right, our people have the right to defend our fellow ethnic Armenians. Armenia is acting as the guarantor of security of Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh. And Azerbaijan launched a direct attack on Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia has certain obligations to provide the security of Nagorno-Karabakh. Pashinyan is a very interesting character because he's been there for a couple of years now. He's only in his early 40s and he came to power in what was called a velvet revolution. The potential for change nationwide brought Nikol Pashinyan to power in mass protests. He replaced this very unpopular Serge Sargassian, and he was ousted in a a popular revolution really. But the problem for Pashinyin is that Sargassian was a friend and an ally of Vladimir Putin in Moscow. So Moscow was not impressed that Pashinyin took over power and that is one of the calculations that the Armenians have to make as they decide a way forward.
0: Russia comes up a lot. Why is that one of the calculations?
1: Well, I think in the last 30 years or so, Russia has been one of the three countries involved in what they call this Minsk Group. It was set up after the the conflict, Russia, the US and France to try and mediate a solution. But they haven't. There hasn't been a solution reached in the past 30 years. And Russia has been criticised really because it maintains relations with both countries, former Soviet republics. It sells weapons to Hmm. both countries, which is not technically supposed to do as it's part of this mediation group, but it does. So it has a great influence and power over these two countries, but yet it has not been able to force some sort of solution.
0: Russia also has a formal security agreement with Armenia. That seems to make this even more
1: complicated, does it? Russia is committed to helping the security of Armenia as it has an arrangement with other former Soviet republics. But Putin made it clear he was talking about Armenia. And Nagorno-Karabakh is not Armenia. Mm -hmm. It's recognized Azerbaijani territory. So, Russia would be forced, in a way, to step in to defend Armenia if it were directly attacked. You would then guess that the calculation from the Azeris, as long as they keep it in Nagorno-Karabakh, then Russia is not going to get involved. So, part
0: of what makes this messy are the outside influences. Other nations are getting involved. There's Turkey. What is Turkey's involvement?
1: Well, this is a new dynamic in this. Turkey has always been an ally of Azerbaijan. It's a a cultural ally, an ethnic ally. They share the same Turkic-rooted languages. But Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the Turkish president, has been very vocal this time in his support of Azerbaijan. And he, along with his foreign minister, have said they believe in the last 30 years this Minsk group that's supposed to have mediated some sort of resolution to Nagorno-Karabakh has failed Uh, They've not produced any result. So why should Azerbaijan have a ceasefire? Why should they not push until there is a resolution in favour of Azerbaijan? Now, Turkey's been accused even by by France and and Russia uh, of supplying mercenaries from Syria. Turkey denies this. But there is clear Turkish involvement in assisting Azerbaijan the prosecution of this conflict.
0: Turkey's history with Armenia has been troubled. Does that have an effect?
1: Well, I mean, from the Armenian perspective, of course, they will always be extremely suspicious of any Turkish alliance with Azerbaijan. You know, in Armenia, they firmly believe that Turkey is out to kill more Armenians. We know that, of course, there is what many countries accept as the Armenian genocide, what Turkey Says is not a genocide, but admits that many, many Armenians fled Turkey in the in the mid-20s during the creation of the state of Turkey and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. So many Armenians believe Turkey is trying to finish what it started.
0: You mention the Minsk group, and there are more countries involved: France, the United States. They've been tasked with making peace happen in Nagorno-Karabakh.
1: What are they saying now? Well, again. The problem is they haven't done much. And France was not very effective in getting talks going. They tried a bit under Jacques Chirac, former French president, tried once. Uh, I believe Francois Mitterrand tried once, another former French president. But they haven't done a lot. Emmanuel Macron, we know, is a lot more activist. He's called for a ceasefire here, but hasn't yet offered to do a, a great deal more. And the US, well, you know, the US was involved, in trying to get some sort of talks going years ago when John Kerry was secretary of state, he had a go. But as you know, U.S. foreign policy, certainly under the Trump administration, is this is not a priority for the current Trump administration. So they haven't done a lot. And that, again, is why people say we are where we are today.
0: We should say that over the past few weeks, there have also been a number of pro-Armenian protests in the United States particularly around Los Angeles, which has one of the largest Armenian diasporas. More than 100,000 Armenian Americans joined a, quote, march for victory last weekend. Millions have been raised, and celebrity Kim Kardashian West, of Armenian descent, donated $1 million herself.
2: And I'm so honored to be a part of today's global effort to support the Armenian Fund.
0: The Azeri diaspora have been protesting too, and things don't seem to be settling down in the region. With the death toll already rising, is there a chance that this could escalate even further? Could Armenia proper be attacked in this, and then what would that mean?
1: Yes, there is a risk it could escalate. And that's what the neighbors are worried about. Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani, he said there is a risk this could escalate if if there isn't a ceasefire. Russia, as I say, has said there is a risk it could escalate. Azerbaijan has not attacked Armenia fully and Armenia from its own territory, from the Republic of Armenia has not attacked Azerbaijan. I think there might have been one or two skirmishes, let's say, but not an outright conflict. They have to try and stop that happening because that could, as I say, drag in Russia will be forced to defend Armenia and then you have Turkey already working with Azerbaijan and you already have Russia and Turkey on different sides of other conflicts in the region. You have Russia and Turkey on different sides in Libya, you have Russia and Turkey on different sides in Syria. There would be a risk of having Russia and Turkey involved on different sides here. Moscow is trying to make sure that this does not escalate and they have some sort of ceasefire before it does.
0: And, of course, this is all taking place during a pandemic. You also visited a hospital, an Armenian hospital, in the capital and the largest city of nagorno karabakh Did you see people wearing masks? Was there concern for that as well?
1: You know, I, I was really quite shocked Of course, there were people wearing some masks because they always do in hospitals, but not everybody was. I ended up putting two on myself because I was so uh, worried about, uh, about the COVID risk. And we asked them about that. And they said they were sort of more worried about dealing with immediate injuries. The head of the emergency department told us this place was 10 times busier than they are in normal times
0: some of my friends were injured in our first and second wars and i can say that then we had more gunshot or other light wounds now they're using different types of missiles and the wounded have bigger injuries but we've not stood still either medicine has improved so we try to save lives and human organs and not leave people with disabilities
1: and as we were there a guy was wheeled in uh, with shrapnel all over his face they said COVID is not as widespread there as everywhere else, but it is widespread. For example, in the bunkers, I would imagine those as COVID breeding grounds because people are in close proximity, breathing stale air for days on end. I imagine it's, it's going to be a problem if it isn't one.
0: Before we let you go, how are you doing? How are you and your team coping with COVID and a skirmish that might turn into a war?
1: We are fine. That's very kind of you to ask. Thank you very much. It's very difficult. Air raid sirens are really frightening. I suppose they're supposed to be because they're supposed to make you go for shelter. 24 hours afterwards, we just could hear air raid sirens in our ears, ringing in our ears. But we only had it a couple of nights. I mean, obviously, if you're in Stepanakert, if you're living there, you've had that all week. And it is scary, bombs going off and air raid sirens and bits of rubble falling down. But we're absolutely fine. And I have a a great team that I'm very lucky to work with. So we're fine. Thank you very much.
0: And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Oni Wohacha, Dina Kispe, Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilvey, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer, Stacy Samuel is the takes executive producer, and Grayland Bashir is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.